Welcome to Broad Eye, the podcast that explores knowledge gaps in ophthalmology and eye care. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Broad Eye Podcast. My name is Sean Maloney, and today I will be speaking with Dr. Charles Wyckoff. Um, Dr. Wyckoff is a surgical and medical retina specialist. Uh, he has a number of titles, so I'm going to let him introduce a couple of those, um, but he's based um, at the Retinal Consultant, Retina Consultants of Texas. So, Dr. Wyckoff, welcome to the show. Sean, great to be here with you. Yeah, I, I, I am a medical and surgical retina specialist, but really heavily involved with, with clinical research. Uh, it's an exciting time in ophthalmology, and it's only getting better for patients. Yeah, no, for sure, for sure. And we're going to definitely dive into uh, some of your your research that you've been involved in. It seems like a, like you were a number of hats in both the clinical and research setting. Um, before we do that, I was hoping we could start off with a, you know, 50,000 foot view of diabetic retinopathy and, you know, what is diabetic retinopathy? Um, you know, how does it develop? Uh, what are some of the risk factors, et cetera, if you can maybe talk to that a little bit. Yeah, I appreciate that. And appreciate the ability to sort of have this conversation with you. Such an important topic. You know, diabetes, if you look broadly, causes a lot of blindness and with a capital B. And that's not a word that I, that I use lightly because I see it every day and every ophthalmologist sees it as well. And, and what's really frustrating about that is that these cases of blindness don't need to occur. This is preventable and avoidable. This is needless blindness. So the blindness from diabetes really doesn't need to occur. So when you see it, it's particularly painful because you know if the patient had just gotten the care that they needed and deserved earlier, they probably wouldn't be blind. Now, of course, you can't say that with 100% certainty, but we know that you can dramatically change the development of blindness from diabetes if patients just get screened and just get treated earlier in the disease course. I'll make just one example of that. So if you, there's a lot of good data now, published data out of England and Wales and Iceland and some of the Scandinavian countries showing that when they implemented successfully a screening program for patients with diabetes to look for the retina manifestations of diabetic diabetes called diabetic retinopathy, they saw the rates of vision loss and blindness from diabetes go down dramatically over time. And so it works. Screening really works. So just a plug, if you have diabetes, if you have patients with diabetes, if you have family or friends with diabetes, which we all do, please make sure they're getting the eye screening that they deserve. Because now if we get into the details that you talked about, right, the eye is sort of the tip of the iceberg when it comes to diabetes manifestations in the, in the body, right? People with diabetes, they can feel fine. They can have no symptoms at all and have quite severe and extensive eye problems from the diabetes. So you can't use symptoms or you can't use someone's vision to determine if they have significant eye pathology that needs treatment. They've got to get screened. They've actually got to get someone to look at, their, at the inside of their eye at the retina. And then you asked two more great questions related to this. What are the risk factors? And then so what does it look like? The risk factors are many. The, the big ones are what I call the cardiovascular risk factors. So blood sugar, blood pressure, cholesterol control. And it's not just, hey, I feel fine. No, but the numbers really need to be in range um, and, and, and as low as possible in most of those situations within a healthy range. The other ones are duration of diabetes. So for example, the longer someone has diabetes, the more likely they are to have diabetic retinopathy. So if you look 
20 plus years down the road after diagnosis of either type one or type two diabetes, it's well over 80%. And in some cases approaching 100% of patients will have diabetic retinopathy. So the last thing I would say is this is really a when problem, not an if problem. If people live long enough with diabetes, they are going to develop diabetic retinopathy, whether they want to, whether I want them to or not. Um, it's just a matter of getting screened and getting access to treatment early. Well, I think that's a, a nice overview. And I think we're, we're going to certainly touch on that in a moment when we talk about uh, a recent research uh, study that you were involved with uh, or helped oversee. But I was hoping you could touch a little bit on uh, proliferative versus non-proliferative uh, diabetic yeah. retinopathy. Yeah, th thanks for bringing up the details here. So in about the, the 1980s and early 1990s, there was a quantitative scale that was developed so that we all could talk the same language about the severity of diabetes in the retina. Right? So if we back up, the retina is obviously the light sensing part of the inside of the eye. It's an ex essentially an extension of the brain that coats the inside of the sphere of the eye. And it has a tremendous amount of blood flow, right? When we sit down and we watch TV and we think we're relaxing, we are, but our eyes are actually working overtime. It takes a lot of energy, sugar, metabolites, oxygen to, to see and, and the processes of, of visual transduction. And, and therefore it's sort of believed that the vasculature of the retina is particularly sensitive to chronic fluctuations in blood sugar, blood pressure, cholesterol control. And once you begin to have damage to the retina, then you can actually see changes of diabetic retinopathy. And those changes involve little microaneurysms, hemorrhages in the retina, changes in the pattern of the vascularity, and then ultimately proliferative diabetic retinopathy. So what that means is that the non-proliferative stages um, are when you get these changes within the retina, little hemorrhages, for example. And then once that progresses um, beyond severe non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy, you get what's called proliferative diabetic retinopathy, where you get abnormal blood vessels that grow in a process called neovascularization or angiogenesis. You get pathologic blood vessels that begin to grow outside of the retina. So they break through the surface of the retina and they grow into the middle of the eye, into the sphere of the eye, into what's called the vitreous of the eye. And when those when those small blood vessels begin to grow, at first they're sort of harmless, but then over time they get larger, they recruit scar tissue, those vessels are friable and, and uh, easily broken, so they can bleed and cause what are called vitreous hemorrhages, which can fill the sphere of the eye, and they also can cause traction from their associated scar tissue, ultimately leading to retinal detachment and blindness that way. So there's non-proliferative stages, which are often asymptomatic, and that's where you want to find patients with diabetic retinopathy. And then as they progress into proliferative diabetic retinopathy, those stages can also be asymptomatic, but that's when patients often begin to notice floaters or distortion in their vision as those abnormal blood vessels begin to grow and distort the normal retinal architecture. No, no that's, a, that's an excellent overview. Thanks for that. So just a couple of questions that come to mind. Um, in the course of managing um, this disease, uh, okay, I guess, A, how, you know, what are some of the treatment and management approaches and B, do any of those overlap with other conditions that involve, you know, a neovascular element like, uh, you know, neovascular AMD? Can you use anti-VEGF therapies 
uh, in these cases as well, or is that not really the gold standard? Yeah, great question. And, and, and to just back up a second, so we talked about proliferative diabetic retinopathy, which is one of the main ways that diabetes causes blindness. But the other big one, just to mention it, is diabetic macular edema. So you've got, you know, type, you've got the proliferative disease, you've got diabetic macular edema, both of those cause blindness from diabetic retinopathy. And, and DME, is, um, if we use the abbreviation, is when the retina, instead of being a dry, compact, multi-layer structure of cells becomes boggy. It sort of gets like a wet sponge and the retina begins to dysfunction. The neurons begin to break down and eventually you get sort of loss of function of the tissue. So both PDR and DME are what cause sort of the vision loss ultimately and blindness from diabetes. And you put your finger right on the sort of most, most, most commonly used management strategy for both of these disease processes, if you combine them, which is pharmacologic therapy. So we have medicines that we inject inside the eye um, called really anti-VEGF um, pharmaceutical agents um, that, that block a very important growth factor that drives the pathophysiology of diabetic retinopathy and contributes substantially to DME and PDR development and progression. And these pharmaceutical agents have been truly amazing. They are revolutionary in their ability to treat diabetic macular edema and PDR, highly effective. Um, their biggest challenges are you have to put a needle in someone's eye, which is a big deal. Um, and the field does this a lot. It really should not hurt, um, but it is a big deal. If you're the patient and you're being told you have to put needles in your eye um, in the clinic. And the, the second major challenge with them is, is that they're not a cure. So most, most patients need repeated treatments over many years, in some cases indefinitely, um, which can be a lot. And on average, patients get after the you know, first year of dosing, through years two and beyond, probably somewhere between three and six shots on average a year in, in, in their eye. So, so it's a lot, it's a big burden for patients. But just to reemphasize again, their efficacy and their safety are, are very, very strong, highly effective at preserving vision and improving vision in many cases, and also proven to be extremely safe over, over a decade of use extensively across North America and around the world. And then to your other, other question, what's fascinating about this class of medicines is that they work for multiple different eye pathologies. So the most common reason they're used is actually not even diabetes. The most common reason they're used is, is what you said, which is neovascular age-related macular degeneration, because the same growth factor that drives DME and PDR also grow, uh, drives a wet AMD or neovascular AMD. But the list doesn't stop there. They're also used extensively for retinal venous occlusive disease, which is the second most common retinal vascular disease after diabetic retinopathy of interest, sort of a subpoint. Neovascular AMD is not considered a retinal vascular disease because in most cases, the new blood vessels actually come from the choroid, which is the layer sort of just outside of the retina in the structure of the eye. And there's many other diseases that we use anti-VEGF therapies for also routinely in the clinic. So they are incredibly effective and particularly effective when you catch patients early in the disease process of diabetic retinopathy and DME. No, for sure. And I think that, uh, you know, anybody who has some background on this knows that, you know, these were really birthed out of some, um, you know, cancer metastasis research, right? Uh, um, with starting back with uh, 
with Avastin back yeah. a, a number of years ago, and then certainly found home in, in eye care. Um, yeah. So I was hoping to dive a little bit into, you know, a research paper that you were involved in, um, which, you know, had some, you know, I would say impactful findings talking about the initial uh, or the severity of um, diabetic retinopathy at initial diagnosis and, you know, risk of severe blindness. So maybe you could just say a few words about that and what the, the findings and impact of that study are. Yeah, it, it's sort of a, a passion of mine, of course, many people that work in this space um, to sort of sort of move the needle across North America to earlier screening, earlier intervention to prevent these needless, needless cases of blindness, because we have such great therapeutics nowadays, these people don't need to go blind. And so sort of an open question for us in the field and where this paper sort of came out of was the concept of, okay, we live in this world where we have great therapeutics for diabetic retinopathy, non-proliferative stages, proliferative stages, DME. We can treat these patients if we catch them early enough, but yet still people are going blind. And so, right, what is the role of baseline diabetic retinopathy severity? In other words, how severe the retinopathy is at presentation, what's the role of that characterization with the ultimate risk of going blind? And the other sort of sub sort of um, context here is right. Traditionally, you know, before five years ago, the only way to get retinopathy screening for patients with diabetes was to go see an optometrist or an ophthalmologist, someone that actually does eye care. But what's fascinating is now is the proliferation of all of these technologies that are allowing screening at PCP offices, endocrinologist offices. Ultimately, I hope you walk into your drugstore or your or your gas station, you can get a eye picture that will help screen you for diabetic retinopathy. That, that's ultimately a big goal, I think, where, where screening can be performed outside of physicians' offices. But today, there are you know, FDA-approved, FDA-cleared um, uh, devices for screening for diabetic retinopathy um, without the presence of a physician, which is great because it allows increased access to screening. And so the question is, based on something you could identify from a fundus photograph, based on the severity of diabetic retinopathy, can you then predict over time the risk of blindness? And, and the answer from this work was, was a resounding yes. Um, and, and what we did was we looked at the largest ophthalmology registry um, available. It's called the IRIS registry, um, which stands for Intelligent Research Insight or IRIS. This is sort of uh, um, shepherded by the American Academy of Ophthalmology or the AAO. And it is a, it is a very large um, database that, that, that holds um, information from approximately 60 million unique patients. It's, it represents over two thirds of practicing ophthalmologists across the United States. It's a very large database that's derived from the electronic medical records of these physicians and these patients. And so we mined this iris registry for patients presenting with diabetic retinopathy with good vision um, over, over, over a few years and then looked at their outcomes. And we were very specific in sort of the patients that we included in this. This wasn't just to look at all patients presenting with, with, with diabetic retinopathy. No, we only wanted to look at patients that had a new diagnosis with diabetic retinopathy. And so the way we did that was we had a lead time. These patients had to be in the registry without diabetic retinopathy 
and then developed diabetic retinopathy. And they had to have at least an 18 month lead time without the diagnosis. So we're pretty confident these were new diagnoses of diabetic retinopathy. And then also they had to have good vision. So they had to have 20, 40 or better, which is essentially normal functioning vision. Um, and they also could not have DME, which is the most common cause of vision loss from, from, from diabetes and diabetic retinopathy at baseline. And they couldn't have a whole host of other ocular comorbidities. So we were trying to be very specific, looking at a group of patients with newly di diagnosed diabetic retinopathy without other eye problems and with good vision. So we're sort of stacking the deck against going blind. And then we looked at outcomes um, um, over time. And I can go into those if, if, if you'd like. Yeah, if you don't mind, just to comment on that, because I think the you know the yeah. the whole findings of this are are certainly you know informative for the field um, and for the people seeing these patients. Yeah, absolutely. So so then the main outcome we were looking at was this development of of what we called sustained blindness, which which we defined as twenty two hundred or worse at 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 two or more visits and without really substantial improvement at any time in the record after going blind. And then the exposure of interest we looked at was, was again, their diabetic retinopathy severity at baseline or at index. And we broke that down into sort of four clinically relevant categories. We had mild non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy, moderate and severe, and then PDR. So we had three categories of non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy and one category of severe. And really there's very good data historically showing that if you have PDR, your risk of blindness is, is substantially elevated compared to others. And so we're sort of most interested in these NPDR patients because sort of traditionally, clinically, you think of these patients as asymptomatic, they're walking around, they think they're fine. These are the people you really want to get into screening. And what we saw was a, was, was a very clear relationship with baseline diabetic retinopathy severity and the ultimate risk of becoming um, a blind uh, over time. Average follow-up here was, was between one and two years. And ultimately a small percentage of patients in the entire population went blind. So we started off with about 53,000 eyes, 53,535 to be specific. And, and only 1.3% of them went blind over sort of a one to two year follow-up period on average. In some cases we had up to four and five years of follow-up, but on average it was about a year and a half or two years of follow-up. But of those 1.3% that went blind, there was a clear increase in that risk among patients with more severe stages of, of diabetic retinopathy. And the specific numbers were that for eyes with moderate NPDR, severe NPDR, and PDR at baseline, their risk of developing blindness after two years compared to eyes with mild diabetic retinopathy at baseline were 2.6, 3.6, and 4 and fourfold uh, greater. So by having sort of severe NPDR to PDR, the numbers are remarkably similar, between three and a half to four times more likely of developing blindness over time. And this is, you know, this, this data set is captured during the anti-VEGF era, right? So we have these pharmacologic agents accessible to us, and yet still a meaningful proportion of patients that present with a new diagnosis of diabetic retinopathy are going blind. And that baseline severity level is quite meaningful in predicting that. And so what this does is it kind of empowers physicians broadly 
to say not, not just eye care professionals, but it empowers really all physicians that, that see patients with diabetes. Hey, look, you really got to get screened. And not only that, but your baseline screening can be highly predictive of your risk of blindness. And if you, and if you have a more severe stage, even if you don't need treatment today, be careful, be extra careful because your risk of blindness is increased compared to what it would have been if you were identified at an earlier stage, even if you're asymptomatic with good vision. No, I think that's it. You know, there's a lot of things like I want to, I want to jump into there, but I'll, I'll, I'll cherry pick a few. Um, but you're talking about, you know, the increased risk when people have PDR, but you're also only talking over a short time frame, like a year and a half, two years. If you look at what is the risk of going blind, if you pre- first present with PDR uh, over five or seven years, like those numbers are going to be uh, significantly higher, right? So um, someone Great thinking, point. oh, hey, it, it, you know, so I think it's, it's uh, something it's important that, you know, any patients or families of patients that would be listening to this thinking, oh, hey, you know, there's only one point some percent of people in the study who went blind. Yeah. And yeah, there was more, you know, more of those are people that had PDR. That's still pretty low. Yeah. But if you look at this over a five or seven or 10 year period, those numbers would be would be uh, astronomically higher. So it's something to to, um, you know, to keep in mind. Um, you mentioned the anti-VEGF is is laser used at all in treating these patients? Yeah, great, great point. I want, I want to address both of those things. The long-term follow-up is such a critical point. It's often glossed over. I'm so glad you brought this up. <clears throat> this is very much a chronic disease. And, and I sort of emphasize that to the patients that I see. I'm like, look, there's no cure for this. This isn't like just a here, do this one-time treatment and you're done um, in most cases for diabetic retinopathy. So I really encourage patients and family members out there, find a physician that is convenient to see it by convenience is a, is a big factor in getting patients to go back and also that you like and respect. Really important that you have a good eye care professional that's comfortable diagnosing and managing the eye problems that come along with diabetes because there are great treatments for this and patients don't need to go blind. And the cumulative development of blindness is very real. So we saw separation of the curves in this analysis as early as one year and before, but then to your point, the numbers just increase over time. That's one of the reasons why I get frustrated with sort of snapshot cross-sectional epidemiologic analyses because it's the long-term risk that's the most important. And if you follow patients long enough, their risk of developing meaningful diabetic retinopathy that needs treatment becomes very high over time. And then your second question is a great one, which is, okay, how do we really manage this, right? Is it always pharmacotherapy? Are we always injecting medicine in the patient's eyes? or something else. And, and there is, right? The, the lasers for diabetic retinopathy work very well. And they've been validated now since the 1980s and, and even earlier for, for panretinal photocoagulation. And for PDR in particular, PRP or panretinal photocoagulation um, has been validated and is very effective. The value of using PRP, which is basically targeted ablation of the peripheral retina, is that you're having a permanent effect. It's not cure. Many of patients that get PRP will need ongoing treatment, potentially for PDR or possibly for DME or other problems, but there is a permanent effect. So there's a little bit of a safety blanket there in case there is challenges, there are challenges with access to care or difficult to get into a doctor or insurance is lost or patients move to an area where they can't access care. So especially among our highest risk patients with PDR, I do think that laser still plays a really important role um, to be considered in the management of these patients. Now, 
there's pluses and minus with pluses and minuses with any intervention in medicine. And and the pluses of the of the medications that we use by injections in the eye are that they don't damage the retina that, 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 that's there currently. There's no ablative effect. You're not killing tissue to be blunt about it. The problem with the medicines is or what we've already talked about. They don't last, they're not a cure. There's no permanent effect. They wear off and the patient will probably be back where they were at severity level if they're not retreated over time. There are some caveats to that that we get into, but I'll leave that for another discussion. The benefits of PRP is that it's durable. There's a permanent effect, um, but the biggest downside is that you are damaging, you're essentially killing some peripheral retina and, and you can have symptoms from that. You can have night vision problems, you can have contrast sensitivity problems, color vision problems, visual field problems, and all of these are well-documented. So it's definitely not a one-size-fits-all for all patients with diabetic retinopathy. There's multiple options. We haven't even talked about the steroid treatment options, which are highly effective um, in this disease process as well. So it's worth a conversation between the provider and the patient to figure out the best options for management. But the key is there are multiple options and they combined when used in the appropriate way for patients are highly effective at restoring vision in many cases and, and certainly at preventing blindness when, when patients receive uh, early access to care. So, you know, when, um, so Christina, who helps me with uh, one of the people who helps with this podcast, when she was um, saying, hey, I got Dr. Wyckoff to be, to be part of the show and it would be great. One of the things that, that came up in a, a discussion was, uh, you know, when you look at the results of the paper that you published, what is alarming to me, and I had this discussion with her, is how quickly somebody, you know, who presents with, um, with, with PDR, for example, how, how, like, you know, the risk of going blindness in such a short time frame. And I think yeah. that that's, you know, a real take home message for, for patients and, and clinicians alike is that it's not like, oh, hey, they're going to present with PDR and oh, they'll probably be fine for five or 10 years. And then, you know, it, it's just a slow growing thing. Uh, once they get to that point, it like, you know, the, the irreversible damage can come on very quickly. And, uh, you know, which really just screams to the, the, the point, which is really what the paper is saying. Like people need to get screened and they need to get screened regularly so that this can be caught early so that, um, you know, this, this is a preventable, a largely preventable, um, form of blindness. Now, is this, is it the same case? Like your data was generated from a U.S. population. Is it the same thing you would assume, uh, or is there data out there in some of these other regions? Like you had mentioned Iceland and, and England, I believe it was, and, and other regions. Yeah. Um, are there data sets there that have yielded the same thing, or is this study with the U.S. population, you know, the first of its kind, uh, at least on this scale? Yeah, it's a good question, and the Iris Registry it is so unique because it's such a huge collection of, of data representing. Um, uh, many, many ophthalmologists and 60 million unique patients. So it really is a unique registry and it allows us to ask questions like this that are, that are unique. But really, while, while this is an you know, important study, privileged to be a part of it with a, with a great team um, I'm doing this, it's actually really, I could say this, less important than the real world data that people are generating showing screening really works. Like I really applaud the teams in England and again, Europe, um, that have demonstrated that, hey, they can take blindness from diabetes, number one cause of blindness. 
and working age people from age 20 to 65. And they can make it so that diabetes is no longer the number one cause of blindness. Actually, the number one cause of blindness in, in the UK now are inherited retinal diseases. It's no longer diabetes because of the effectiveness of the screening programs. So, so you know, huge kudos to those teams that have shown that and, and, and the teams that are making that happen on a daily basis because there are so many patients with diabetes and they deserve to get screened. And, you know, Sean, you and I, we walk around, we're busy. Like if, if I had diabetes, I could easily see how I would say, I can see, I don't have a problem. I don't need to go get my eyes screened. I'll just wait till I'm symptomatic, right? And we see that all the time. So please, you know, if I could have two call outs, one to patients and families and friends of patients with diabetes, it represents all of us, please encourage people you know with diabetes to get screened. It's non-invasive, it doesn't hurt. There's zero risk with the screening process and you so deserve it because vision is so important and it can be much harder to get it back once it's lost than it is to preserve it from the beginning. And secondly, as providers, you know, if you're a primary care physician, if you're an endocrinologist, if you see people with diabetes, I would really encourage you to begin to look into the technology that can do um, screening exams in your office, right? There are these camera systems now that you can rent or buy or whatever, and you can put in your office and you can do screening for diabetic retinopathy in your office without an eye care professional, which I love because it really allows us to expand the points where patients can get access to screening. You know, so you brought up a, a couple of things there. Um, one was that you had briefly touched on it earlier, but you, you kind of hit that point was that, um, you know, patients are thinking, hey, I won't bother getting screening until I have symptoms. But, you know, you, that's the other thing that came out of your study is that, you know, by the time someone has symptoms, they could have a very advanced disease, which is, uh, which is quite scary, right? So um, that's definitely something yeah. for people listening to this. Um, and even people who are, you know, uh, medical students or residents uh, or, or physicians in other spaces that are listening to this to be be aware of it might be too late at that point in time or, or largely too late the second thing i wanted to touch on was so what is it that europe and other regions have done so well in the implementation of screening um that maybe the u.s or north america is maybe a little bit behind on it like what do you see as necessary steps to you know make this other than just the education side of it uh, the necessary steps to, you know, to put this screening in large scale into practice. So whether that is screening that's happening at, you know, their, their family doctor, uh, you know, the family uh, physician's office, or in, like you said, maybe eventually in a pharmacy or, or elsewhere, what, like, what do you think is necessary to, you know, to really um, make an impact in, in you know, over the next decade, what they've, like they've done in other locations? Yes, super important question. And I wish there were an easy answer to that. I think the, the approach has to be a multi-pronged approach, right? We have to, A, you have to continue to work on education. This needs to be a national initiative, right? This needs to be something that, that, that all physicians get behind, right? Blindness has so many downstream effects. And there's so many papers over years and years showing this, right? Blindness doesn't just affect the person that's blind, of course. A, it takes them out of the, the economic um, engine of a given you know, area, a given country. It, it sort of makes them more dependent on others. It can actually drag down the economic productivity of, 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 their, of their family and their social group because people are helping them when they might otherwise be working. It can have certainly have negative 
physical effects on a person that's, that, that, that's blind. They might exercise less. They can have negative emotional and psychological effects on the person that's blind and the people around them that are blind. So huge implications locally and beyond about, about the numbers of patients that are blind. And so really needs to be a national initiative to minimize blindness. And the easiest place to do that, the lowest hanging fruit is diabetes because the treatments are readily available highly successful at preventing and, and treating um, blindness. Um, so it needs to be a national initiative. Secondly, it needs to be, well, I'm an eye care professional. And, and you know, we've always said, look, you got to get your, your screening, go see an eye care professional once a year. That's great. I mean, if people can do that, I think that's still the gold standard, but we need easier ways for people to get access to screening. So like you mentioned that we talked about before, sort of imaging modalities, right? Eye care is such an elegant specialty and I'm so fortunate to do it because it, it's, it's so beautiful. We get to look at these amazing retinas in the back and it's such an imaging based specialty. So there's no reason why non-invasive cameras can't be used to screen for diabetic retinopathy at, at any, anywhere you can think of, movie theaters, malls, whatever. Just like when you walk into a, you know, a, a, um, a drugstore, you might see a blood pressure cuff where you put in a dime or a quarter or whatever, and you get your blood pressure measured. Well, there's no reason that that technology couldn't be implemented for diabetic retinopathy screening as well on a population, on a population basis. And then, you know, third and probably the most complex of all of these is the payer system, right? So, so you've seen these big changes in, in, in places across, you know, across the Atlantic, where you have single payer systems that are able to make it an initiative and really a mandate for, for, for physicians and patients uh, that they really have to get screening. It's no longer sort of an elective part of it. Um, and so I think we're a long way off from that, at least in, in, in the US, you guys in Canada, maybe a little bit closer um, uh, to being able to, to mandate something like that. But I think, I think it's a multi-pronged approach and education's gotta be the foundation for, for all the approaches. You know, the uh, before, I, I want to just dive into maybe one more topic before we wrap up. I, I appreciate taking your your time here. Um, but you're talking about you know the the whole the whole uh, you know point of the conversation is really hammering home on the early screening and detection of diabetic retinopathy. And uh, I mean, there are other eye diseases also that can uh, benefit from early. I mean, everything can really benefit from early detection. Let's be honest, right? And the eye is. Uh, other than let's say the skin and looking at dermatology, the eye is probably um, the, you know, the ophthalmology, I guess would be the most accessible discipline for imaging technologies. Um, what do you think the, you know, the next five, 10 years holds? Can, you know, do you think that I will be able to, you know, hold my smartphone in front of my, it's going to, you know, be able to detect where my pupil is and, you know, hold still for a minute and take a fundus photo that could be, you know, uploaded to the, to the cloud and automatically screened or uh, using uh, either sent to somebody like you uh, in Texas when I'm sent from, from Montreal um, or, you know, like are these technologies uh, on the horizon, you think? And if not, then what do you think is uh, up and coming in the diabetic retinopathy space? Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. You know, I think that two thoughts there. Yes, I, I do think that the imaging of the inside of the eye is going to get more accessible to, to, to people. I, I don't know if we'll be able to directly point your iPhone just given the optics of the eye, but I do think in the near future, you'll be able to buy, you'll be able to buy little adapters on Amazon 
that, that you clip onto your phone and then point it towards your eye and get a picture of the inside of your eye. So the th things like that are gonna be very possible in the not too distant future. And then, yes, I think there, there will be software systems available where you can upload your own images and, and, and look for pathologies, databases that will match your, your, your image with other images that are out there. So I think, I think those things are coming. The other thing that, that this branches into is the utility of ocular imaging for other diagnoses, right? The eye is very much a window into the entire body. And there's, there, there, there's good papers already showing that based on a fundus photograph, there are software systems now that can predict highly accurately a patient's blood pressure, a patient's smoking status, a history of a cerebrovascular event. They can even predict things like gender status. Is it a male or a female patient? And you know, no ophthalmologist or optometrist in the world knows how to do that, looking at a fundus photograph. So there's, there's a lot of information in these in these images um, that we've been looking at for years. And there's a lot of really sophisticated software algorithms being developed to not only think about diabetic retinopathy and the risk of going blind, but also diagnosing many other diseases, including things like Alzheimer's disease and many others. So I think that, I think we're gonna see ocular imaging in general, and specifically retina imaging, play a much more important part in, in a lot of, of angles of medicine and diagnosis and prognostication um, over the next five to 10 year horizon. No, I think, you know, I heard uh, something in just in a recent interview I did with, um, I don't know if you know, Professor John Nolan, um, he's at the yeah. national. Yeah. So he's, you know, very uh, well known yeah. in ocular uh, nutrition and he was yeah. highlighting um, that, um, you know, the, I think it's the concentration of macular pigments is actually uh, seems to be correlated with, um, you know, Alzheimer's and, and, and dementia's progression. So it's um, right. like you said, the, the eye can be a real window to, to, um, to health in general. So I think that having, um, you know, good imaging of the eye and make that broadly available and then have that, you know, probably disseminated to, to physicians uh, to be able to make diagnoses or, eventually have artificial, you know, um, AI or machine learning applications that can, can render diagnoses and just send the referrals to people like you say, okay, <laughs> this person here is, uh, uh, you know, this is their, their situation. Here's the automatic referral and, uh, set up an appointment. And, uh, uh I think that would be, be nice to see and, uh, you know, make the, make the field move a little smoother, but, um, is there anything else you'd like to add before we wrap up? I mean, it's certainly, uh, I think we've covered, covered quite a bit, um, Enjoy the discussion, Sean. Yeah, that was fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Well, listen, I, I appreciate you taking the time to, uh, to to speak with me about this and share your uh, your knowledge and perspectives. Of course. Good luck, Sean. I appreciate the work you do.